You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. How's it going, y'all? Kyle, that felt a little forced. Let me try it again. <laughs> Would you want to be him every time having to it's say like that? I've tried every creative route possible. Audience, feel free to tag me in your thoughts on what to do to spice <laughs> Let's up. Let's get ready to rumble. That I say. Like that. Yeah, I need to just start really doing something zany every single time, but... No, okay, I don't great. want well, that. We're here, here we are. Yeah. Listen, uh, Crossway, somebody we've worked with in the past, we have a great relationship with. They're excited to invite churches and small group leaders in the U.S. to request 52 free copies of Jen Wilkins' book, Women of the Word, While Supplies Last. Uh, ministry leaders are invited to apply for free copies of the book for their church with the intention of helping women in their congregation read and discuss the book together, and more importantly, get deeper and deeper into God's Word together. So if you want to request 52 free copies of Women of the Word for your church, simply fill out the application form linked in the show notes or visit crossway.org slash women of the word. And uh, JT, uh, when you read women of the word, do you just tape over the W O the woe on the front? You just take out the woe. I'm trying to come up with like a funny gender thing here, but I'll just get mm-hmm. canceled for that. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, okay. What I will say is, uh, and we, 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 we've been talking about this opportunity that Crossway is offering now in the last couple podcasts. And uh, I've offered this to Jen offline, but I just, I, I want to say it here. This is such a great thing. Crossway is not telling me to do this. Like, this is a great thing. And our church is not participating in it just because I didn't know about it till right now. But we've been participating in it by buying books. <laughs> by buying, we've bought hundreds of these books. Why? It's not because I'm, I, you know, it's not because I love Jen, though I love Jen. It's not because just I love the book, though I love the book. You're afraid I'm, of that's me. True. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to fear. as a preacher. <laughs> it's because I want my church to be steeped in scripture. And this is a book that helps us do that. We give away about 20 or 30 of these each month. We, we have a resource center at our church. We've got, you know, maybe five, six books that we just are regularly giving away. And then we've got a couple that we'll give away. But based upon what I'm preaching on, this is one of those that's just on repeat, though. And, like, people can go to our resource center and just grab these books. And we give away, like I said, 20 or 30 each month. And it's actually changing, like, the the vibe at our church. So ministry leaders, pastors, again, this for me, this isn't like a plug for Crossway. It's not even a plug for the book. It's a plug for the health of your church. Uh, if you want your church to be more steeped in Scripture, to enjoy God's Word, there's no reason for you to not hop on here, uh, crossway.org slash one of the word and get copies for your church. It will That's contribute true. to the health of your church. I love it. I love it. Is it, is this a bad time to announce that, uh, I have a forthcoming book out called brothers of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine writing that book right now? That was the, that was the gender joke. Dang it. I missed it. Crossway. Is- <clears throat> Please call it bros. <laughs> bros of the Bible. Bros of the Bible. Bible bros. Bible bros. Uh, well, hey, throughout this season, we're uh, taking a look back on the last 10 seasons of Knowing Faith, which is wild to say out loud. We're having some fun uh, doing just some memory road kind of episodes. We're also going to be looking at some of the values that have animated our partnership, things like biblical literacy, theological discipleship, brother, sister culture. We have a lot of friends and guests coming on this season as well. But as part of our season, we're exploring the doctrine of salvation. And we're looking at regeneration today. But I want to press pause 
because sometimes I have these moments where I'll realize like we're talking a lot using words that may be a newer listener or a newer believer or somebody who's just getting these resources. They just find it somewhere. They're like, what are you saying? So when you say doctrine of salvation, what's a doctrine? So let's just kind of pause here for a second. It'd be good review for everyone who already knows what a doctrine is, but what's a doctrine? Yeah, there's, I think, several terms maybe here that we could define. Doctrine specifically is just a, a, a Christian belief. It's something for us to say, we believe that the Bible teaches this as a truth. And so over the last 2,000 years, if theologians has, have have uh, have sought to speak about God's word, we can't just say exactly what the Bible says. We want to kind of organize those truths as it speaks to them from Genesis to Revelation. That's called systematic theology. We, systematic theology is trying to take into consideration the whole corpus of the Bible or the, the whole story of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is trying to think about church history and how men and women have thought about this over time, how we've thought about that globally, how that interacts with like worldviews and, and philosophical history. So doctrine is this idea of like we want to move from what the Bible says to truths about what the Bible says in ways that could be understood by our contemporary culture and context. There's sometimes other words that are used other than doctrine that mean similar things, like a Venn diagram overlap, but not the exact same thing. Things like creed or confession mm -hmm. or like, like we just talked about theology. Those terms have some similarities, but they all don't mean the same thing. So I think doctrine is a really helpful term to say, this is a Christian doctrine. This is what Christians believe. We don't agree on every single doctrine. Might be disagreements about baptism or disagreements about the Lord's Supper or how to organize a church, but broadly we would say Christians agree on the essential doctrines of the faith found in things like creeds like the Apostles' Creed or Nicaea or Chalcedon, uh, Westminster broadly. So there's there's things that we would say, this is what Christians believe. That's a doctrine. That's good. An easy working definition for me is that doctrine organizes and summarizes what the Bible teaches. What she said. Right. There we go. There we go. So when we think about something like doctrine of salvation, we're saying, hey, this season, we're exploring the doctrine of salvation. We're, we're exploring kind of what the nuts and bolts are of what Christians believe about how God saves his people. That's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about election, like we did a few episodes back, or effectual calling, like we did last episode, or regeneration today, you could say doctrine of election or doctrine of effectual calling or doctrine of regeneration, but all of those fall under a broader canopy or umbrella that we could rightly call the doctrine of salvation or Christian beliefs about how God saves his people. So we've looked at election. We've looked at effectual calling, and let's retrace our steps today before we jump into regeneration. When we think about election, we're talking about God's before the foundation of the world, his predestinating or his setting apart for himself a people that he will secure their salvation. Now, we talked about this, and I know I'm just giving you like the real hatchet job on election. So you're like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or how about this? Or how about this? Well, we did a whole episode on it, but our view is that before the foundation of the world, God set apart for himself a people. He predestinated them for salvation, not on the basis of anything else, but his sovereign grace. I just need to say it's predestined. No, but you could say his predestinating work though, right? Predestining. Really? Is that right? I, th I think you're just throwing an extra syllable in there to be a I'm not trying to be. This is how I say it in preaching ministry, so I definitely need to check this out. Okay, I'm going to go with what Jen said, but he— 
he predestined. Those whom he, yeah, he no, predestined. No, he predestinated, he predestinated him, I mean, like him, them. I, <laughs> those he foreknew, he also predestinated. I have been using this word <laughs> no, for he didn't a predestinated decade them. of teaching he, and he, preaching. He predestinated-ing them. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna- Listen, I cannot throw stones here because I think I told you guys that I found out that I was using the word component. I was saying component. Mm. And while it is an acceptable way to say it, apparently no one else says it that way. So Tomato, tomato. I just want to there join you, join you on the anxious bench here. Well, I'll take it. If that's what election is... Uh, rightly or wrongly pronounced. Uh, what electionated? <laughs> Electionating. <laughs> All right, have your fun. Have your fun. Okay. Uh, I like Mary. Like Mary, I treasure all these things up in my heart, and they, <laughs> and they will, will come, come out, out at um, some point. <laughs> uh, so, uh, JT, what is effectual calling? Since Jen just roasted me, I'm going to slide right past her. <laughs> The the affectionated <laughs> calling I can't I can't I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, this this I, I really enjoyed our last episode talking about effectual calling. We we try to make a distinction between the general call of the gospel, the word of God going forward to all people indiscriminately. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew twenty eight, go make disciples of everybody. Like tell them who I am and what I've done. And so we want to make sure that what we say next about effectual calling doesn't limit the scope of the gospel going forward to all people. We believe in evangelism and missions and. And calling, like what Jesus does, all people repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But effectual calling is the very specific work of the spirit of God of making an effectual impact in our hearts. And this is going to tie into regeneration. It's it's him making us alive again. It's the spirit of God's specific work. We talked about at the end of it, the last episode that really removes and resolves the preacher to, to or evangelist, teacher, minister of the gospel to a freedom of, I want to, I want to present the gospel with excellence and clarity and beauty, but I also know that this is a work of God. We also have great comfort that our salvation, those of us who have been called to Christ, were effectually called by him, not because we made some kind of rationalistic decision or because we were presented a great, you know, apologist's, you know, uh, uh, argument for why we should believe, but rather God so loved us that the spirit of God effected the gospel in our life and made a genuine impact in our hearts, minds, and lives. That's right. That's right. And today we're really talking about the complement to effectual calling, um, the other side of the coin, so to speak. We're talking about regeneration. Regeneration. So regeneration is when the heart that we have been given by nature is replaced with a new heart. That's it. Regeneration is when those who are born, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in their trespasses and sins, are made alive spiritually. That's what it is. Now, I've been working through this with my daughter, and she's like, okay, what my heart's living because it's pumping. And I do think Mm -hmm. this is an area where in Christianese, we get really used to talking about the heart in a way that like can be a little confusing. Like when we talk about the heart, when the Bible is talking about the heart, when we talk about a heart that's broken by sin, or we're not talking about the blood pumping organ in our chest, we're talking about the seat of a human's will and desires. You can call that the soul or the spirit, the mind, but we are talking about really the um, spiritual 
dimension of the human person. That's not to say that our bodies aren't also broken, but we're talking about God replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We're not saying, God, that we're born into this world with an actual blood-pumping organ that is made of stone. We're saying that the seat of our being, the center of who we are before God, the heart is broken by sin, spiritually dead and cut off from the living God. And regeneration is that doctrine that helps to explain how that change happens. How do we go from dead in our trespasses and sins to alive? Well, that is the work of regeneration. How are other ways the Bible talks about this? Well, I also just want to point out that heart is 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 related to will and emotions. Um, and I think we might think that God saving you or, or transforming your heart means that he sanctifies just your mm-hmm. feelings. And that's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God changing your will mm-hmm. so that you're, you, you will that's what right. he wills instead of what you will. Because if you look back to the garden, that's what got broken is that Adam and Eve willed what they wanted instead of submitting their wills to his. And so um, when you hear heart, hear decision maker. Now, obviously, our decisions are impacted by our feelings, but you should hear decision maker primarily when That's you good. hear that. That's good. To, re- to regenerate means to give new life, to, 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 to be born again. One of the illustrations that I think can be helpful from the Old Testament is Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 37. Um, I won't read the whole passage, but a valley of dry bones. And the imagery here is that a bone that's alive isn't can't be dry. If, if the bone is dry, it's dead. The person who had it is dead. And so Ezekiel 37 says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out of this. He brought me out by his spirit, set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley. And they were very dry. And he said to me, and this is this idea of regeneration. Can these bones live? Mm-hmm. How, how do you make something that's dead come, come back to life? He responds at the end of verse three, I replied, Lord God, only you know, which I think is another mm-hmm. tip, of, not tip of the cap, a very clear picture of only God can bring something that's dead back to life. That's what we're talking about in regeneration. We'll get to John 3 here in a minute, I would assume, where Jesus has some similar teaching. But just to continue what Ezekiel says here, he says, he said to me, prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's again, effectual calling. Hear the word of the Lord, that these bones would hear God's effectual call upon them, and that only God can make them live. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. I will put tendons upon you, make flesh grow on you, cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. That's regeneration. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What's one of the first things we see Jesus doing after his resurrection? He is, he's resurrected, he's, he's in the garden, and his, one of his first acts, even before he goes to heaven in the ascension, is he breathes upon his disciples the same breath of life that he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He is the God who finds dead things, breathes life upon them so that these dry bones could be regenerated or born again. Can we do a little biblical, more biblical theology before we get to the story of Nicodemus? Yeah, let's do it. Because I like for people to understand how 
early this theme is introduced into the scriptures. And we know, um, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the baptism formula of we're buried with Christ and beautiful believers baptism raised to walk in newness of life. But if you think about the first place that we see baptism imagery, it is in the flood account with Noah and his family going into the ark. And um, apart from that ark, they are as good as dead. They pass through the waters of death to life on the other side. And so the idea of something being raised from death to life is introduced very early for us and then gets reiterated over and over again. Um, You see it on a broad scale in the story of the Exodus. You see it in a micro scale in the story of Moses' own deliverance through the waters of death to life on the other side. But another way that we see the theme traced is in the life of Abraham and the patriarchs and the infertility story that they have. Um, because what you see is God bringing life out of what in that culture would have been thought of as a dead womb. And so, um, those infertility stories, while they may have an individual application for a listener, we need to understand their broad application to the story of redemption as bringing life from death. And the way that we know that that's how we should look at those stories is specifically when we look at the story of um God testing Abraham by telling him to sacrifice Isaac. Because we find out in the New Testament that the reason that Abraham is willing to go through with it and even raise the knife over his own son is because he believes that God can raise him to life if he kills him. He knows the promise will come. But what does he understand? He understands God is a God of resurrection power. Abraham does in Genesis. So the idea of regeneration is introduced almost as quickly as the idea of spiritual death is. I mean, you could say it is introduced as quickly as if you take it all the way back to Genesis 3 and look at what's playing out there in the garden with the the, the slaying of an animal um, for the purpose of clothing Adam and Eve. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. The CSB Life Counsel Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. So we do get this unveiled though in the New Testament in a really explicit way. Yeah. In John chapter three. Yeah. And Jesus with Nicodemus, we we won't read the whole thing. I do think it would bear reading a portion of it um, because I, I do think it's valuable for us to hear it in the words of Jesus here. So let me just read a, a portion of what we find here. 
So Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He's coming to Jesus kind of in the middle of the night to talk to him about, hey, we got some questions for you. And so he says this to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So this phrasing born again is usually used as a, a way of talking about regeneration or new birth uh, or being made alive. You see this not just here in John 3, but you see regeneration throughout the New Testament. And while the language or phrasing around the concept changes, it's still being articulated in a way that communicates there is something old and dead that's being replaced by something that's new and living. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is a fascinating mm -hmm. story because when we think about born again, born again, I think that language is kind of, I don't know, you guys tell me, it feels like being born again was language that at one point had like some real significance kind of in the Western Christian imagination. But now it almost feels, it feels a little antiquated. Like when people talk about being born again, it feels like something from a bygone era. You know, you even hear people talk about on old sitcoms, you can catch it. Well, you know, that person's a born again Christian. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like it becomes a shorthand for somebody who's really, really, really like committed and converted and zealous about following Jesus. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting phrasing. Do we, I don't hear people use that much more anymore. Do you, do you, I mean, it's there, there's nothing wrong with it, but I just don't hear it as much. No, I wonder if it wasn't, I wonder if it didn't rise in usage as a result of uh, revivalism. Yeah. You know, because I think it was so prevalent in that movement. Uh, and then I wonder if it didn't kind of take on that connotation that is associated with evangelistic yeah. movements rather than, and I mean, you know, born again, that's the moment of yeah. salvation is what you're yeah. referring to. So it makes sense that it would be associated with evangelistic movements. But then just the way that evangelism was sometimes handled, I think sometimes people want to distance that's themselves true. from that version of Christianity by not using it anymore. But I think we've really lost something, both in the way that it became overused and in the way that it dropped out of use, because... Um, it's an important metaphor, uh, and it's one that, like we just said, you can trace it all the way through the scriptures. And so I hope we can reclaim it a little bit. Yeah. And it doesn't just show up in, in John 3. I mean, we hear it in First Peter 1, you know? Yeah. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again mm -hmm. to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. from the dead. What, where else do we find this, JT? Well, one of the things I would say, I, I do think, I, I understand your kind of comment, Kyle, about like, man, this this language, like to be called a born-again Christian feels like it comes with like political baggage or like historical baggage. Like it comes with all of these other things. It's used more as a sociological mm -hmm. term today than it is as a theological term. I mean, I, maybe I'm the fundamentalist in the group, but I think it's really language that we should not recapture just because it's biblical. But I, I think it communicates some really important, significant, and theological truths. Because to be born again yeah. is affirming also our doctrine of sin, that we're dead. 
Yeah. Uh, and we live in a, a world, especially in the Western uh, kind of uh, community today, where salvation is found in self-actualization. But the Bible is telling us it's actually found in self-denial, recognition of our deadness. Uh, you know, that right now we're we're often told that salvation is found in finding yourself, like go deeper in. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not against the inward journey. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be more self-aware. Of course, all of those things are true. But the Bible presents a fundamentally different picture of ourselves, that the solution is not in us, it's outside of us. And that's what I think Ezekiel mm-hmm. chapter 36 is saying. The solution isn't that we would affirm our dry bones, but that we'd cry out to the God who can make dry bones alive, that can make us come alive. It's, our solution is not found in dead hearts, but in the God who can make dead hearts come back to life. Our solution isn't found in the domain of darkness, but that the God of the Bible takes those who are living in darkness and invites them to live in light through new life in Christ. And so, being born again is is not just affirming that God uh, saves us. It's also affirming our depravity, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses and in desperate need of God to make us alive again. That's right. I think it does another thing for us too, which will move beyond the scope of what we'll talk about in this episode, but we need to understand regeneration as rebirth because— then we understand um, what it means to be a Christ follower as a newborn. And I think that's something Mm. that a lot of times we think, well, delivered from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, so I'm good now. Um, But if you think about Peter's words, you know, you just gave us the opening of that letter where he says, cause us to be born again. But at the beginning of chapter two, I believe it is, he says that you're to crave the milk of the word like newborns. Um, And so he knows he's speaking to new believers and he's saying, you should you should regard yourself as a as a newborn infant. Um, and so when we when we see regeneration simply as a turning point instead of as a beginning point, mm-hmm. uh, I think we can miss something. We need to understand that um, the new believer is in many ways as helpless as a newborn, but will grow to be strengthened because what does that do? That then makes the rest of us in the body of believers understand our role differently than we might. If if being born again is 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 a, is metaphorically to be a spiritual baby, then then a spiritual baby needs um, mothers and fathers to raise it to maturity in the church. So I, I think it's a really important metaphor for us to hang on to. When we understand it just simply in human terms, then we begin to regard it in spiritual terms with the importance that we should be giving it. That's right. That's right. Last, uh, last episode, when we were talking about effectual calling, we made a distinction between this is not unique to us. Theologians, when dealing with the work of salvation, will often make a distinction between the logical ordering of salvation mm-hmm. and the chronological ordering of salvation. And I realized that when we did that, we didn't really say why, other than the Christian experience reason. But there are two reasons why this distinction is important. The first is that the logical ordering of salvation, what's sometimes called the ordo salutis, while we don't always experience that in these huge chronological gaps, like uh, effectual calling happens, and then you know a couple of months later regeneration happens, uh, they're all like JT was talking about. They're all these different sides of the same diamond, and many of these coalesce together in a simultaneous event. So the chronological ordering of salvation can be a little bit difficult because of how the Christian experiences it. The reason why theologians have made a point to work through what we call the logical ordering of salvation is because there are questions that arise 
that the logical ordering of salvation helps to alleviate. And it does appear in Scripture like there is a process that even though we experience simultaneously has these very clear movements and moments to it. And the reason for that is because we cannot have our hearts regenerated until we hear the good news of the gospel. But not every proclamation of the good news of the gospel is accompanied by the spiritual hearing and receiving of it. So Mm -hmm. effectual call precedes regeneration. So if we ask the question, when does regeneration happen? Well, regeneration accompanies or complements the effectual call of salvation. God elects his people, and then God, through the general free offer of the gospel by the power of the Spirit draws people through the effectual calling where the external work of proclamation begins to land in the internal work of salvation in the life of an individual and begins to pull them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son. And you might say the first fruit of the effectual calling, although we don't experience it as a distinctly different thing, is regeneration, meaning the heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. Where there was spiritual death, there's now spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And this is crucial because many of the things that come after this specific dimension or angle in the doctrine of salvation are going to be received and they're going to grow in this new spiritually alive heart, this new spiritually alive soil that once was not there. And so the logical order of salvation is helping us understand how can someone be justified if they are unrighteous by nature? Well, they if they're dead, spiritually dead, how can they even receive God's gift of justification? Well, they can because they've been made spiritually alive. And having been spirit, been made spiritually alive, they now receive the gift of righteousness. So this ordering is helpful for understanding how salvation is applied to the life of the believer. It can feel, and I think rightfully so, it's been criticized as being a bit too heavy-handed in its structure. It's not supposed to be this tool by which we assess any given person's purported claim to be a follower of Jesus. Give me the moment you were effectually called, the moment you were regenerated, the moment you were justified. It's the logical undergirding for what can sometimes be the diverse Christian experience of receiving God's free gift of salvation in Jesus. And a, a way to think about that distinction is to think about the difference between a theological assertion and a practical experience, right? Mm-hmm. So you you have to have the theological conversation because sometimes the practical experience of it may not point you clearly to how things happen. And so like Kyle mentioned the the logical or the theological and then the chronological, and then there's also the experiential, right? Mm, um, right. And I, the experiential, you could argue is the same thing as the chronological in a lot of ways, but just that the way that I remember my salvation or the way that I perceived my salvation may not necessarily articulate the theological truth behind it. Mm-hmm. And that's because of my limited understanding, not because the theological truth is is wrong or unclear. That's right. That's right. So the result of regeneration, JT, where does regeneration lead? What does regeneration produce in the human heart? I mean, it produces a child. I mean, if we're just thinking about this in really mm-hmm. simple terms, I mean, the basic idea here is mm-hmm. now you're part of a new family. You're a child of God. It produces yeah. 
brothers and mm-hmm. sisters. It invites you into the family of God. The same way that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is this wind is going to blow where it wishes. And I, one of the things that this is a little hobby horse for me is we often talk about the Pharisees as people who are biblically literate. Jesus doesn't believe that. He says in John chapter 3, how could you be a teacher of Israel and not know these things? And so they're, <laughs> I, I always joke that the Pharisees aren't biblically literate. They're actually just really passionate about their ignorance. Whole other conversation there. But what we see here is Jesus offering one of the most <laughs> basic things of the faith is that God takes dead people and makes them alive. This is, as Jen, I think, helpfully pointed out, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This is this is the whole story of the Bible. Like, this is this is the key thing. And so the first thing it does is it invites somebody who is an orphan and adopts them into the family of Christ, gives them new life in him. We're invited now into this new family, the church, where we have all of these beautiful truths that we'll get into over the course of the season that are now identity markers for us. We're justified. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. We're adopted. Uh, we're cleansed. We're righteous. We're no longer guilty. We've been declared just. But in addition to that, and we'll talk about this later too, we now live different lives because God's spirit now lives within us. We're now called to live uh, holy lives as God's people who have the spirit of Christ uh, living in us. And that's, of course, it will give all kinds of caveats that it's it's messy, it's it's challenging, it's difficult, it's a life of perseverance, but we're now sons and daughters of God, invited to freely follow him and empowered by his spirit in new life to do so. That's right. And like, uh, as we move forward in this season, we're going to explore, okay, so what's going to grow and be planted in this new spiritual life? What, really, what's it going to be marked by? What gifts is it going to receive? And what characterizes it? But this, when we're talking about regeneration, we're really talking about the almost like the, it's the conception of salvation in a human life. It's the very beginning. It's the mm-hmm. origin point for mm-hmm. a new work experienced in the life of a Christian, a brand new Christian. Well, I've said elsewhere that our first basic act of wisdom when we are reborn is that we repent. Mm-hmm. So I would like to take this moment to repent, Kyle, because I have looked up the word predestinate, and it is, in fact, a word. Let's not give him it this. It means predestined. Let's, let's not give him but this. But I just yeah. would like to say. You know. Um, <laughs> I am sorry. It's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, this moment was predestinated <laughs> to happen. Um <laughs> Repentance is one component of it salvation. Is. That's yeah. true. And and faith and repentance are, his, uh, theologians will t- talk, uh, typically talk about regeneration. The regenerate heart has two movements in it that it, that it could not, it could not move this way before, but it can now exercise a gift of faith that God grants by grace. Uh-huh. And it can move in repentance to turn away from sin and turn towards life in Christ. Yeah. It, it now has a new set of spiritual desires. And the first two micro movements, so to speak, of even this newborn faith are, or newborn life are faith in God mm-hmm. and the turning away from the kingdom that ha- one has now been delivered from mm-hmm. and a turning towards the kingdom of God in Christ. Which is, you know, which is why when we summarize the gospel call, we often summarize it as, hey, the call on your life is repent and believe. And you can hear both of those things. It's turn away and walk in faith. That's right. That's right. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) We've never had that happen. That's a first. I think we're done. (laughs) Uh, JT's mic stand literally You guys saw my hands weren't even on it. It just uh, happened. Which is, I think. It just fell apart. No, that was yeah, predestinated to happen. Um, 
that was. It's true, some, although. Some component of that is not working. Yeah. And uh, I think also there is some human responsibility at play. Uh, in your setup <laughs> That's probably true. So <laughs> uh, it's almost certainly true, knowing what I know about you. Um, but okay, well, that's probably as good a way to end an episode. Yeah. Talk about a real just crash landing for That's an episode. The Lord. Yeah. This is it for us. Well, uh, on the next episode, we're going to be kind of panning out to talk through one of the things that kind of this animates our Finish, Kyle. as a value. <laughs> I'm trying to do what I can. Brother, sister culture. We're going to talk about what it means to live as brothers and sisters, why we've tried to model that on the show, and why we're interested in advancing that among Christians. Um, if you want to find out more about Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Um, JT is literally holding this mic right now. You can leave us a review over at Apple Podcast. Uh, drop a question in there. I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep vamping. Just keep talking. Drop a question in your podcast review, and we will consider it for a future Q&A episode. If you want to find out how you can support us, go to trainthechurch.com slash support. I will tell you that we have a cohort that we run twice a year. And while the spring offering of this cohort is completely filled up, we do have spots available for the fall of 2023. We love this cohort. JT, Jen, and I get to do this. It's a more behind the scenes thing that we do. We work with churches and church leaders to think about how they can increase adult ministry spaces, adult discipleship spaces to focus on deep discipleship in the life of the local church. If you're interested in that and you're a church leader, you can find out more about that at trainthechurch.com. We would love to have you in a future cohort. In our next episode, we'll be chatting about brother-sister culture. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace, Grace and, and peace. peace. There we go.